What's up, guys? Welcome to the Humans of MarTech podcast. His name is John Taylor. My name is Phil Gamash. Our mission is to future-proof the humans behind the tech so you can have a successful and happy career in marketing. What's up, everyone? Today, we have the pleasure of being joined by Arun Thulasidharan, CEO and co-founder at Castle.io. Arun is a data engineer by trade with over a decade of experience in building and scaling systems in the startup ecosystem. He started his career in software engineering roles at Applied Materials, an enterprise semiconductor manufacturer, and later MIQ, a programmatic advertising media partner. Arun then joined Flipkart, known today as India's largest e-com platform with a whopping 150 million customers. He then moved to the startup world, joining Hevo Data as one of the first tech hires, a no-code ETL data pipeline that enabled companies to consolidate data from multiple different sources. In 2021, Arun moved to San Francisco to co-found his first startup, Castle Data, a warehouse-native customer engagement platform that sits directly on top of your cloud data warehouse. And along with his team of founders, Arun was selected by Y Combinator in the winter 22 batch. Arun, thanks so much for your time today. Really excited to chat. Thanks, Bill. I think I am uh, glad to be here. I have actually been following your podcast for a while. And uh, for, for like a data engineer like me, right, who did not have a lot of context about marketing and who is trying to kind of solve marketing problems, I think it has been super informative. So yeah, keep it going. Nice. Awesome. Appreciate you uh, checking us out. Yeah, I'm excited to get you on the show because we definitely been chatting a lot about uh, CDP, Compose versus Package and talking about warehouse native stuff. So uh, I discovered your tool during uh, some of my research for for some of the show. And I was like, I, I need to reach out to, to Rune and, and, and get him on the cast there. So maybe we can start with like a bit of the journey. I know that like you initially like the evolution of Castled and, and how you initially launched as an open source reverse ETL tool to sync data from your warehouse to your marketing tools like HubSpot and Intercom. And you kind of pivoted after that to building a competitor to HubSpot and Intercom and launching your own customer engagement platform or marketing automation tool that sits on top of the warehouse. Walk me through that pivot and uh, some of that early journey. Really curious. Yeah, I think uh, like I was in Hebo Data, right? When I actually encountered this problem where customers actually want to kind of move the data out of the data warehouse into different tools. And um, I think at that time, I think there was no like proper tools out there. And I think that was around the time I kind of resigned and started to kind of build um, uh, reverse ETL. I think uh, I think around that time, a hydrogen sensor started gaining popularity. And I think we had a different um, value proportion to what we are trying to build. Right? We are trying to build it open source, right? Because I think Airbyte was also kind of gaining popularity popularity and uh, we thought that the long tail was important right you know like a closed door solution cannot really solve all their problems and that is why we started to kind of build like an open source reverse ETL solution and I think we had like a good amount of traction right we had a lot of companies using our open source um, like in-house and also uh, like we had we had deployed our cloud and we had even paying customers on the cloud right so things are going well uh, right I think um, I think right around the YC is when actually we pivoted and the reason uh, was that we felt that reverse detail is not really sustainable, right? I mean, um, basically after YC, right, we just wanted to kind of build something like really, really big, right? And something which is sustainable, right? I think before YC, it was not the case. Um, and we realized that reverse detail is probably not going to be 
that right i think uh, i think the concept of warehouse native apps were gaining popularity right and then uh, a lot of these tools like your mix panel your amplitudes your intercoms of the world they were actually kind of building reverse ethel themselves right so now um i mean for me it was obvious that you know this is something which will be there for like maybe a couple of years and it'll kind of go down and that is actually true right now if you see right now the reverse ethel companies are not made for data teams right they are actually made for marketing growth teams right now and it's it's evident right because nobody actually wants to move the data to maybe uh, this thing to maybe intercom or something because they have other ways to do it and i think maybe in the next one year this completely go down and that was the reason and we kind of realized that that is going to happen and the other reason was that um so pre- predominantly we are just targeting marketers right we want to send the data to their marketing tools and um we got this feedback from marketers that reverse ethel does not really solve my problem right because mm. i like you know i have like say for a b2c customer right if i have a billions of events right i understand that you can send all this data to my tools right but my tool cannot really store and process so much of data right <laughs> so they can store maybe 3 months of data they can store like a and if i kind of uh, in just more data they'll charge me more right and uh, that is a time when the warehouse native concept was also kind of gaining popularity and um, that is when we realized that Uh, if you really want to make the data warehouse accessible for marketers right so copying the data from the data warehouse to another tool is not the solution right you will have to kind of solve it directly on top of the data warehouse right and and that is why we started kind of castled and we just kind of let go of reversity very cool super cool uh, journey and interesting pivot there i'm sure that you're very well versed in the debate right now that's really hot in the data world that's kind of coming over into marketing around composed versus packaged cdp having uh spent a lot of time thinking about reverse etl uh before we get to warehouse native stuff would would love your take on on the current package right now and what your perspective is right. Yeah, so I think there are a lot of debates around it, right? Uh, like uh, composable and this thing, right? And I agree and disagree with a lot of those uh, points, right? Because eventually, it is all everybody is trying to kind of market their own products, right? Uh, for me, the different, I mean, the the way I see composable and packaged CDPs is how I see maybe an open source and a closed source system, right? I mean, these are different things which I probably have a lot of not a lot of people have kind of talked about. Um, so a composed like or a packaged CDP, right, on top of the data warehouse. it gives me the flexibility to innovate on top of the data warehouse right you can actually if you feel that it is not like complete right then i can add i can probably add like more tables i can more add, add more transformations right i can plug external tools to the system right to give you an example right um there are tools like maybe truality there are tools like uh, zing right what they do is actually they do identity resolution on top of the data warehouse right and they do kind of fuzzy identity resolution not like deterministic so they'll say that okay this row and this row might be same and because of that i'll just kind of join them together right and these are innovations which are actually happening on top of the data warehouse now i don't want to be in a closed system right where i am not like you know i cannot actually have these innovations on top of my data warehouse so that is actually i mean obviously there are a lot of other arguments around it which i think a lot of people have said but this is just one analogy which i don't think a lot of people have actually been this thing and this is how i see composable versus packaged cdp very interesting yeah i think that like a lot of the folks on the composable side mention flexibility but like you you kind of put it in a different a different way of just like in a in a closed system where you yeah. are doing a lot of work on the package cdp side for transformations and 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 modeling that data and it's not replicated to the data warehouse and like based on what size of or stage of company you're at eventually you're going to get a data warehouse and the data team is going to be doing all that work on the warehouse and then the marketers have the cdp where and then you get into that battle about about silo so yeah interesting perspective there 
I, I'd love to uh, get your take. So like we've uh, obviously been very deep down into the the warehouse native uh, connected applications or warehouse first. Like there's a bunch of different terminology uh, that, that companies are, are using to, to describe this right now. And I've asked a lot of recent guests uh, about some of their thoughts. And uh, I think that by now, uh, the regular listeners of the podcast uh, have a good grasp on it for, for the new, the new listeners. Um, I would love your, your definition of warehouse native MarTech. Do you align with Snowflake's definition of connected applications? Basically, unlike traditional managed SaaS, connected applications process data on top of the warehouse, giving you uh, control over that data. And uh, benefits include like preventing silos, removing API integrations, enabling custom analytics, and, and a bunch of other stuff. What's what's Arun's definition of warehouse native? Yeah, I think um, so. I mean, uh, so there are like different terminologies, right? One is warehouse native, another is connected app, right? And there's a third one, which actually does not fit into these two. And that is what customer wants, right? So <laughs> I just, I just feel that, right? I mean, obviously it is okay to kind of fit an application into any of these technologies, right? So to kind of define warehouse native, right? I think my definition would be uh, maybe the warehouse native kind of framework which Snowflake has provided where you can just run everything on top of the data and connected app is actually what you just mentioned where you kind of uh, kind of separate compute and data because the data is not lying on your SaaS app. It is lying on your data warehouse, which kind of gives you all the flexibility that we just talked about. And then you are just kind of computing. The, the compute actually kind of happens on your internal kind of clusters, right? And then obviously it kind of has a lot of advantages. It, it doesn't, you don't have to do all these API integrations, um, right? Obviously it is warehouse native is more consistent. You don't have to move the data out, right? So obviously there are a lot of, and security, right? For enterprise customers, security is a huge aspect, right? And and reporting, right? I mean, basically for our, one of our, for our customers, the major advantage of warehouse native tech is uh, we kind of write all the data back to the data warehouse, right? And then for them, it is a gold mine of information which they can use for reporting and analytics, right? So there are a lot of advantages of connected apps, right? Or a warehouse native apps, right? So uh, it's okay. It's okay to kind of fit an application into any of these technologies, right? From my point of view, right? I don't think that Castle is a warehouse native app or a connected app, right? For me, um, it, it's about like what customer wants, right? For example, if you are just talking to an enterprise customer who says that, security is important to me. I don't want to move the data to an external system. Like, um, I mean, I don't want to kind of move the data to external system like Braze or iTrouble, right? Uh, so sure, I can actually kind of solve this kind of all the problems on top of the data warehouse using the compute in the data warehouse, right? So that's a flexibility that we are providing. But majority of the customers don't really want that, right? I mean, if you ask like maybe mid-market companies, right? They will not say that I, I have a problem if I just move the data out to a different tool, right? For me, what we do is, for instance, right, if you uh, if you just kind of solve, try to solve all the problems on top of the data warehouse, you actually miss out on certain use cases, right? So real-time use cases, transactional use cases, right? So now why would I want to restrict myself? It does not make any sense, right? So for me, it's uh, like warehouse native is a flexibility, right? That if I want, I can run queries directly on top of the data warehouse as well, right? And for certain use cases, which... Uh, I can actually kind of cache this data, for instance, for real-time use cases, what we do is, uh, right, you know, we like we allow the user to kind of segment, uh, we create segments directly on top of the data warehouse using all the data in the data warehouse. And once the segment is created, right, we cache the uh, segment on our data side so that we can, you know, power real-time use cases, right? So so that is what we do, right? We, we, we do a, in a combination of both, right? We can even call ourselves reverse ETL plus our own data storage, 
right and if required we can run the queries on top of the data warehouse right existing traditional tools don't have that flexibility right and that is exactly the reason why they are putting all these data limitations on the customers very interesting and you you actually wrote an article about this like why current martech fails and how current customer engagement platforms are are doing this uh, with like the API route and needing like a bunch of other tools to, to to do exactly what you kind of explained. So like some of the issues you raised with current CEPs include costly data volume based pricing. Uh, before yeah. we started recording, like I, I talked to you about like some of the the challenges and and, and the money I've paid in, in past startups when we're not really getting revenue from those customers, but they're part of the database yeah. right now because we want to nurture them and we want to keep an eye and, and see like eventually if they're going to convert, but you also talk about limited data look back periods. I'd love for you to unpack that and poor quality yeah. data, increased time to value. So how, how does this, uh, can, can you unpack like some of these elements for, for the audience and, and feel free to touch on like how Castle offers uh, a solution for, for some of these issues? Right. So I think uh, I just want to kind of, I think the first customer interview where we got this feedback was somebody who just mentioned what you mentioned, right? I have a millions of customers. I have like 5 million customers, right? It does not mean that I'm getting the value out of them, right? So right. number of customers does not directly kind of correspond to the value that you are getting out of it. And that is the first feedback that we got. And then we kind of dig deeper. We got other customer feedbacks where they mentioned about other things, right? So like, if you, if you look at a very small B2C company, right? They have millions of subscribers. It does not mean that they are making a lot of money, right? So for us, I mean, people say that we will kind of, our pricing is based on the value that you get, but is it really true for the existing solutions, right? Are you mm -hmm. actually getting those value, right? For us, we understand that, I mean, the, I mean, still we might not be completely correct, right? But I, we understand that, you know, we, we are kind of pricing based on the number of team members who are using this tool. And that is a more kind of an accurate, um, approximation of the value that a company is getting, right? Obviously there are more marketers who are using the tool. Obviously, you know, they are bigger and everything, right? So for us, you know, that is the kind of differentiation, right? And, 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 and because we are obviously not storing the data, I mean, we might store the data to kind of, you know, solve certain use cases or to kind of optimize some of the, because we don't want to kind of write, run queries all the time on the data warehouse. That's an optimization for that. And to solve like real time use cases, transactional use cases, we might store the data. But we don't charge you based on the kind of you know compute that we do, right? I mean, we charge you just based on like the number of team members who are using the tool, and that's how we are solving that particular problem. And the second problem is obviously the data look back period that you mentioned, right? So <clears throat> I think for both B2B and B2C, but especially if you just talk to a B2C company, like a travel company, who is planning like vacations, right? So like if you plan a vacation now, after six months, you'll be planning another vacation, right? And with the data retention of six months, right? How are you going to do retargeting or re-engagement? Does not make mm -hmm. any sense. Right. So obviously for e-commerce e companies, right. I mean, you would want to kind of, uh, segment users based on the purchase they made in the last Christmas. Right. So are you really able to do that? Or if you are able to do that at what cost? Hmm. Right. So those are, I know, obviously, and then it's about, um, marketers waiting for data engineers, right. They'll raise a Jira <laughs> ticket and they wait for like three months. Right. It's just like, they'll keep on refreshing the page and see if it works. Right. Um, <laughs> So yeah, I think that is another problem, right? People, I mean, in our case, your data is already there in the data warehouse, right? Uh, I'll agree that there is some friction bit with using the data warehouse data for marketers, but I think that is slowly getting solved with a lot of things which is happening on top of the data warehouse, right? So for me, um, this is actually a no-brainer, right? It's just a matter of educating uh, the folks that this is how ideally this should work. 
Yeah, I think there's definitely a big education piece to that. Like, it's not just uh, pricing changes education. Like, you're you're introducing a different pricing model in the industry that's very unique and different from every other player in the marketing automation or or customer engagement platform. Marketers are just used to like, yeah, I'm going to be charged by like database size, and like, there's there's trickiness there to introducing new pricing to the market. But like you said, I think the bigger challenge is this idea of like the modern data stack and and promoting that within marketing teams and having the data warehouses, the central source of truth. And I think that's becoming more and more of a thing. And and marketers, as they work with data teams, are becoming more aware of this. But I'd love to chat with you about like this idea that clean data warehouses seem to be kind of the prerequisite for operating any warehouse native MarTech tools. I think we like to think of our pipelines as like data lakes, but in reality, like especially in enterprise and mid-market, we're usually talking about data swamps and and not many companies have clean data from the start. Of those that maybe, you know, larger companies with sophisticated data teams with cleanup pipelines, they have yeah. like well-established stacks and less likely to move from a, a, an iterable or a braze that they've been using for three, four years. And there's like 40 marketers like building workflows in them. There's huge technical debt to marketing, uh, to migrating out of those platforms into something like Castled. So <clears throat> like... Do you agree that some of the best candidates for something like this, like a warehouse native uh, marketing automation tool, are actually data-led startups with a clean stack and don't have a lot of technical debt that are willing to like play with new tools that maybe in that B2C space that have a lot more users and are, are willing to, to to play with a tool that doesn't charge them based on like database size? No. Yeah, I think it makes sense, right? I mean, we are so like we like I mentioned that right, we have we are primarily targeting B2C customers, but okay. interestingly, we have B2B customers as well, right? Who are probably doing drip marketing, email marketing, right? A lot of things on our system, right? So uh, but we are our messaging is everything around B2C, right? Uh, <clears throat> yeah, so I think as you rightly mentioned, right? I think uh folks with clean data warehouses are probably the right choice for a warehouse native tech. Um, and I think interestingly, right, I think it might, I mean, like, I just want to correct one small thing that you mentioned is about, you're talking about maybe enterprises and mid-markets. Um, we have customers who are SMBs, right? Very small companies who have a very clean data warehouse, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the reason which I have seen is that everybody understands that data quality is going to be an issue like down the lane. Right. So earlier when you people used to say that I'll get a data warehouse, I'll just kind of pump all the data to data warehouse. Then I'll think about the data quality. Right. But now it is not the case. Right. When somebody mm-hmm. is getting the data warehouse from day one, they understand that data quality is important and they're taking the right steps. Right. And you might be like, just, I think I was just very surprised that data quality is higher in smaller companies compared to maybe mid-market and enterprise. Right. Because, you know, they have maybe the CTO is directly kind of doing all these things. Right. And they they're already kind of putting all the right practices. Maybe they have kind of implementing data contracts. Right. So it's it's I don't really think that there is a uh, this thing that really mid-market and enterprises have clean data warehouses, right? But yeah, I think obviously good data warehouses are a prerequisite for a warehouse native tech. But I think a lot of people have good data warehouses, right? That is actually kind of shown by the popularity of reverse ETL tools, right? Because reverse ETL actually kind of sends this data from the data warehouse to like these tools. So obviously if you don't have a clean data warehouse, then how will that work? Right. So, yeah, but I think what you're seeing is makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I think that like, uh, 
more and more companies are, are definitely like marketing teams working with the data teams and, and, and cleaning that up. And I think more and more use cases that are coming out of marketing teams, data teams are realizing that like, okay, we need an ETL tool to get that data from iterable into the warehouse so that we can clean yeah. it up and do ID resolution and pair that with whatever those users are doing in the app or, or on the website. But yeah, it, it's interesting. I find this space really fascinating. And like I've, when, when I talk about this with other guests on the podcast, the, the warehouse native topic, um, a lot of folks are excited about this, but they kind of see it as like further down the line, like maybe at some point teams are going to have cleaner data warehouses, or there's going to be a way to like get around the compute charges of having everything on top of the warehouse. So I'll hit you with like some of the the challenges or um, yeah. like the, the components that like some of the guests mentioned. And I'm curious, like what your take is and, and how you guys are like uh, counteracting those and in, in, in go to market conversations. So the first one is real time data. You touched on that a little bit, but like uh, okay. right now in my company, we're using Redshift and uh, I'm waiting like a full 20 24 hours before I get an update in Redshift for for my tool. So um, again, like it, you can solve this on the warehouse side, but like it, it takes a lot more work, and like you're probably spending more money. The second point is related to this on compute charges for teams that are lucky enough to have that real time data. There's an added cost on compute charges and create a, a load on on Snowflake or, or your data warehouse, and it can add up pretty quickly. Um, schema ownership you touched on as well. Like the the data team usually owns that schema, the models, and it might not always be a format that marketing can do something with it. For example, like creating a table for every product event versus creating a product event table and having the events be columns, like tiny little things that data teams like probably don't really think about when to set up the warehouse. But when marketers come to actually action that data, it's not in the right format for them to do anything with it. And the other one yep. you also mentioned at the top is data warehouse access. Like not every data team or a company, depending on the size, like want any marketer accessing that data warehouse data from like a security and, and a privacy standpoint. But yeah, so like real-time data, compute charges, schema ownership, data warehouse access. Uh, what's yeah. what's your counter take on, on those four uh, objections or challenges? Yeah, I think uh, these are kind of uh, some of the limitations which I've been hearing from the time like I started this thing, right? So happy to kind of kind of uh, give my take on this. So first is the real time kind of use cases, right? So um, from from real time, right? I just see that there are like two different real time use cases, right? First is that you actually want to react real time to an event, right? And second is the real time data, right? So we all like I mentioned, right? We already saw the problem of reacting real time to any event right for instance if you're an e-commerce company right you want to kind of um when the order is shipped you want to send a push notification or email notification right so you can kind of hit our api like like any other marketing tool and within like within milliseconds we'll actually send that push notifications or um email email directly using the data from the data warehouse right so for that we kind of cache the segment data on our side we don't kind of cache all the data but just this user segments right on our side so that we can enable that right so majority of the use cases which i've seen actually kind of falls into this category but i understand that you know there is another set of um you know use cases around like real time data right and and for instance it might be a new user sign up right when a new, new user signs up mm -hmm. you want to maybe send an email right and then the data is not in the data warehouse right so we have customers solving that problem also and and first of all right this 24 for our data sync is something which uh, I mean, obviously, you know, a lot of customers that we have probably don't have this kind of a delay, right? Um, but I think it makes sense, right? I mean, obviously, it is possible that there is this compute charges and everything because of that, you want to kind of delay it, um, right? So um, 
yeah so basically for for the second use case right for new user sign up so what our customers are how that how they're solving it is right when you're kind of making that api call that they actually kind of give the contextual data right they because when when there's a new user sign up right you actually have all the data in the context of that particular api call right because the new user data right it's not that this user data is in 40 different places and then you have to kind of collect this data in the data warehouse it's a new user right so for that particular use case i don't really think this is very relevant right so how people are solving this is they kind of making the api call and they're passing all this context data data along with it and then we can actually use this data for like personalization and everything Right. So that is how we are solving our customers are solving real time use cases is the second one that you mentioned about. Does it make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So just to unpack that like the I love the example. So like new user signs up, we want to send a welcome email right away or like an SMS if they opted in for SMS. You're saying yeah. in cases where customers don't have that data in the warehouse until like the next day or in like five hours or whatever. You're going around that by using API connections and the context of that new user signing up. It comes in the payload of 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 yeah. that API, and you can use that those parameters in the email or or in the SMS. Right. Yes. Okay. Cool. So on on the compute charges, like this is one area that I'm like less familiar with. Like I think like data teams are more familiar with with this one here, especially on Snowflake. Like I've heard this from a couple people. Like, yeah, cool. The idea of like this sitting on top of the warehouse sounds really great, but every time my marketing team builds a segment, they're essentially querying my my warehouse and it there's a cost to that query and every time we want to like update that query like there's a cost to that as well so how how do you go around that like is there is there still an argument to, to going around that or is it like a, a cost savings perspective where you know someone going with castle they're saving a ton of money because you're not charging them on database size but maybe they're like paying for an increase in compute charges like how do you see that that charge element yeah. So I think uh, compute charges is a very common problem in the existing cloud data warehouse, right? I mean, if that is not done right, it can probably kind of kind of have really bad effects on a, <laughs> the data warehousing ecosystem as well, right? So I'll, I'll give you my take on this, right? So your data warehouse actually contains all your customer data, right? Now, if you decide to kind of, obviously, you know, this compute charges is something that you have to take into account while deciding whether you want a data warehouse or not. Mm -hmm. Right. But my understanding is that a lot of people would still want to have a data warehouse because of the kind of value it adds. Right. So now once you decide to have a data warehouse, right. And then you say that I have all my customer data in my data warehouse. Right. And I want to kind of enable not only data analytics. I want to enable marketing also because marketing is where all the money is. Right. So people kind of spend a lot of money on marketing. Right. <clears throat> now. So, so that is the thing, right. Once somebody decides that I want to enable it for marketing, right? So then what is the best way to do this, right? So for first thing is, right, you, you can actually have data engineers write these queries to kind of create segments and, and do everything on top of this data, right? Or you let applications which are running on top of the data warehouse write these queries, right? So, I mean, the, the major reason of this compute charges, right? I mean, a lot of people don't talk about it is because data i mean people are hiring analytic engineers in bulk right they just kind of hire like if i want to have a solve use case we'll have hire more people and these are not really experienced folks right i mean so data engineer writing sql optimal sql queries takes a lot of you know years of experience right and and people who are missing that are comes here and then kind of writing models and models on top of that is the reason for the cloud compute charges hmm. right so my take is very simple right once you kind of collect all this data on the data warehouse 
the the the, the system which is actually better equipped to write the queries are applications like us right for example if you are just adding even a minor filter in us audience builder right we just take two two days right we just run all kinds of load tests just to make sure that um the customer doesn't have to kind of like pay even like $1 extra right so for me um uh, for me right this is like the most scalable model right so once you see the value in the data warehouse and enabled for marketing right obviously there are going to be compute charges right but if you use a warehouse native application your compute charges are going to be minimal and going to be optimal right so that is how i see this very cool okay so yeah like there's a misconception you're basically saying around compute charges and most of the time it's related to potentially inexperienced data engineers that are creating a lot of those costs by having inefficient SQL queries or yeah. like creating models on top of models when really what you're proposing with Castled is a streamlined approach or simple SQL queries that aren't as expensive from a compute standpoint as like a large data engineering team would be costing the data warehousing uh, company in the first place. Yes, yes. Okay, very cool. Uh, yeah, so last two ones were like schema ownership and, and data warehouse access. Like how have you countered that? Like, do you think that's more like on the enterprise side of, of things where like there's like this control element and like the, the right. formatting element to it? Yeah, I think, I mean, those are things which I don't think that we can do anything about it. It's mostly right. about yeah. educating the people and saying that, you know, um, this is the value that you're going to add, right? And then uh, if you're not enabling it, then your marketers are losing value, right? But I think the number is like very small, right? I think it's, uh, I mean, obviously it is like so small that it's not going to really affect. I think even enterprise customers don't really have this kind of restriction like that frequently, right? I think, um, so I think, I don't really think there is anything we can do about it other than educating the people that um, like, like we can, we can tell that, you know, this is like, we are kind of writing optimized queries on a data warehouse, right? Compared to our data engineers, right? But <clears throat> if somebody says that I don't want to kind of, give access to my data warehouse to marketers, there's nothing like we can do about it actually. Yeah, yeah, no, that's fair. It's a more of an internal challenge that that teams need to get educated on and and, and read your blog posts, read Medium and, and, and read other sources there too. I think that like the idea of, like allowing marketers to get data warehouse access and, and blocking them out of it is, uh, I think, limiting and and uh, you know discrediting like the value that the marketers can add to the business by by using that data. And I think that like on on the schema ownership side of things, um, like you know that doesn't solve like for example like HIPAA access and 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 PII information. Ultimately, if I'm using Iterable and I'm making a copy of my you know, my data warehouse in Iterable, like there yeah. is going to be PHI data and and, and HIPAA yeah. stuff in in Iterable, and I need to sign a BAA with Iterable and like they're HIPAA compliant and all that stuff. But like essentially, that argument in and of itself like doesn't doesn't solve itself. And yeah, like I, I agree, it is more of a an internal human challenge and, and an education piece than uh, yeah. The the two first ones, I think yeah, your your arguments were were really strong there. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk like more like uh, larger or taking a step back on like the, the market side of things. Like we talked about composable versus packaged a little bit, um, warehouse native tools, like it's getting harder 
harder and harder as a marketer um, to track the package versus composable battle these days. Like there's a ton of overlap with so many tools. Like, and it is changing so fast with acquisitions and new features coming out, like ETL tools adding reverse ETL features while reverse ETL tools are adding uh, customer data infrastructure and tracking components and becoming composable CDPs in and of themselves. CDPs adding product analytics and AI features while their predecessors and product analytics tools are adding their own CDPs and in, in, in AI features. CDPs are adding marketing automation features while marketing automation and, and customer uh, and uh, customer engagement tools are adding uh, CDP features. Uh, I know you've talked about like some of those examples like Customer.io recently rolled out their own CDP feature in there. And then we've got CDPs also adding warehouse connectors and, and warehouse syncs where they basically acknowledge that the warehouse is essential and, and they're trying to catch up to, to reverse detail components there. Like how... How do you see like this the space playing out over the next few years and without like talking about secret product roadmaps at, at Castle? Like what what is the most exciting space of this from from a Castle perspective? Yeah, so I think uh, consolidation is something which is bound to happen, right? Because yeah, I think data stack was actually consolidated and now it kind of split into this thing like different different tools. And now obviously it is going to kind of consolidate, right? And then um, because I I was just talking to like some somebody recently, right, who had like a lot of uh, like, you know, data technologies, right? And when I looked into it, right, it has a lot of overlap between them, right? I mean, if you want, you can actually kind of reduce the tech stack by half, right? You know, that's how much the overlap is, right? Um, so I, I, yeah, I think I, I just feel that, you know, it'll, um, it'll actually consolidate more where maybe even ETL solutions will add reverse ETL capabilities. I think Airbyte has already started that. I, I'm pretty sure that, you know, Fitra will actually kind of start going into uh, the territory of heritage and census, right? Um, and uh, and I don't know, like it's kind of complicated, like you know, DPT, right? Which is doing transformations right now. Um, Snowflake has built this dynamic tables, which is kind of doing something very similar to that. Uh, like you know, Google has this data form, which is an alternative to kind of DPT, right? So um, there are a lot of you know, like data warehouses building transformation capabilities, ELT tools building reverse ETL capabilities, right? I was working in Hevo Data, right? They actually build ETL reverse ETL and transformations, right? <laughs> so there are a lot of consolidated data stacks, right? So I, I don't really know how this is going to go out, but I just feel that it is um, it is just going to be like very, like the number of tools in your data stack will keep on reducing like every two months, right? Where it's either, I don't need this tool because other tool which I'm using already provides this. Why do I need this, right? So, uh, so I think everybody has to kind of, kind of evolve, right? For instance, like I mentioned, reverse ETL, right? You know, they are, they don't care about data engineers now, right? They say like marketing is like mm -hmm. our, our right and and they are building like features on top of that audiences this thing this thing right so i think I, I, like everybody will evolve right everybody has to kind of find a place in the modern data stack and it might not be possible right so i don't really know how this this whole mess is going to play out right but yeah it's kind of interesting right and other stuff is maybe the even the tools which collects events right? like cdps they'll actually allow product analytics right because a gradual evol evolution because anyway you're storing all this events data you can probably do analytics on top of that Right. So, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's crazy. It's, I, I mean, uh, I don't really know where it, this is going. Right. But I, I can guarantee you it's actually good for the customer because um, the, 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 the size of the data stack is just going to reduce like frequently now.
Mm, yeah, I think that's a good takeaway. It is at, at the end of the day, it might be tricky for for some of these vendors to to work out, uh, but like for the customer, it's it's going to be valuable. Like, uh, I love the point you raise. Like, it, it almost makes me think back to um, I think a way that uh, a previous guest, uh, Alexandra, had on the show when we talked about this. She was also she was saying like right now there's a, a big battle between like composable and saying that like they can replace a CDP, but really they're just like one solution and like a, a like a, a a stack of like composable options that replace the CDP. But over time, like you said, consolidation, these like reverse ETL platforms are adding ETL components, they're adding uh, product analytics, they're adding like tracking components. And at some point, they're going to be almost having the same features as the package CDP, the CDP that they're fighting right now in all of their marketing materials. So like in two, three years, like all the work that they've done on like fighting the package CDP from a composable standpoint, yeah. they're basically going to be a package CDP with all the offering that they have on their site. Right, right. So data warehouse will actually just be a database, right? And there'll be tools that will actually you know, send this data. So data warehouse is going to be a very powerful database where you can just, st- which can store a lot of data. And there'll be like vendors who can, can, can just build package CDP around this data warehouse, right? I think that is where it is going. It makes, yeah, I think, I think totally aligned with you. Do you think that like if the industry does go the warehouse native route for marketing automation and customer engagement platform, and like you you know that like some folks are already doing this with like your customers set, do you think that it yeah. replaces eventually the need to have a reverse ETL or a data pipeline that gets data out of the warehouse? Like you're already yeah. getting your marketing business tools sitting on top of the warehouse. You're kind of like, do you still need that third party that is like sending data to those tools if those tools are already ingesting that data on the warehouse? Right. I think that's a very interesting question, right? So yeah, obviously it will actually reduce, I mean, remove the need, eliminate the need for having a reverse ETL pipelines, right? But I, like I mentioned earlier, right, it should not be the reason why you're starting a warehouse native solution, right? So if you're building a warehouse native solution, it should be that existing solutions have this kind of problem and we want to solve that, right? right. If you're just kind of in the market, just because you want to eliminate reverse ETL, then I'm pretty sure you're going to die like pretty soon, right? Because like solutions like customer IO, right? They're actually building a reverse ETL into this thing, right? Why would, I mean, obviously they'll choose you, right? Um, but if, but if, I mean, like I mentioned, right? I mean, it's about like some of the limitations of the existing tools. If you can solve using warehouse native approach. So then that is where I think this is going to kind of go. Gotcha. Yeah, this is uh, fascinating. I really like your your perspective on on a lot of this, Arun. It, like you said, it it is different than than a lot of the guests that, that I've had on the show. So I appreciate your take. Um, I, I know we're close on time, so I wanted to like it's hard to get through a podcast these days without talking about AI. And I know you've you've posted about AI uh, a bit on on LinkedIn. We've definitely been deep down the rabbit hole on on the podcast, doing a four part series on on a lot of stuff like tooling and 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 ML and generative AI. Like there's there's so many topics to to jump off here, but chatting especially with like early stage marketers there is still a lot of like fear versus optimism when it comes to ai like one of the first topics always is just like how fast could ai change or replace marketing jobs um so like i i would love to to get your take on like what you think are the challenges that ai like generative ai specifically or or even like ml capabilities like what challenges do they have to replace everything a marketer does today yeah. So I think, um, so actually I was just going through one of your, um, uh, I think podcast, right. Where you've just mentioned that the scariest part about this is any kind of innovation that you're building on top of GP to two, 
will be completely eliminated when there is somebody is building on top of gpt right. like five or six right and that is exactly the limitation with ai right now right so so i mean obviously there are LLMs, llms right now we can actually solve a lot of you know problems related to like natural language passing right but um if you want to kind of go to agi which is like you know uh, artificial general intelligence right where you know they can start making decisions right um i think it is slightly kind of longer way to go and the reason is that like who is actually going to innovate on this right uh, so that is exactly for me it is it, it will always be like open ai google Facebook, right? Who have like billions of dollars, right? So if you just kind of read the story of OpenAI, how they built it, I mean, they 2015, they kind of started this and they kind of, you know, hired the best AI researchers in the world and the kind of journey they took, right? It, it kind of makes it evident that how difficult it is to kind of make disruptive AI innovations on that side. And that is exactly the reason why um, I think that this is actually going to take slightly more time right um and and i understand that there are a lot of innovations happen i mean like there are companies who are actually kind of innovating on their internal like um like stack right for instance mm -hmm. there are marketing tools who are kind of building ai which is outside of this llms and everything right uh but i i really don't think that is going to sustain right because uh, once this open ai the, the the big guns right build this agi right all this technology, right? For instance, you know, I, I'm not doing anything on AI and Braze is actually adding like, you know, two years of effort and building something like super cool on marketing, right? When OpenAI releases the main next AI kind of innovation after two years and exposes an API, I'll just integrate the API. I'll be better than Braze, <laughs> right? So, so this is the main problem, right? Like why would you innovate, right? Because it, it does not make any sense, right? Um, I mean, it's very simple, right? I mean, there are a lot of AI technologies like Langchain, uh, Falcon, right? Which a lot of people are talking about, right? You just have to ask them, are they using any of these technologies in production, right? Everybody is calling GPT-3, GPT-4 APIs, which are super expensive, by the way. Mm -hmm. right? So I think, I, I think this is like the major, I think everything can be replaced, right? So, so maybe 10 years down the line, right? You will not be contacting this podcast, maybe an AA will be, right? Um, so, I mean, everything is possible, right? But the whole point is who's going to innovate on this? Yeah, super interesting take. Honestly, I, like my next question was going to ask you about like, uh, how are you thinking about like ML and, and NLP and like self-optimized campaigns within Castle since you are in that customer engagement space? But I feel like you've already answered this. Like you're you're watching all of these like bigger players, the competitors yeah. on, on this space, like try to innovate with like adding AI and ML features that are just like kind of catching up to some of the more sophisticated tools out there. Like um, I have a podcast dropping next week uh, with uh, Pini Yakuel from uh, Optimove and they're, they're kind of like, I discovered them in, in that AI tool research and like they're leading the space in terms of like, they've been doing this for 10, 15 years, like self-optimized okay. campaigns and just like um, experimentation and just letting kind of like AI take the wheel and the marketer still kind of approve that content. But you're basically saying like, I'm I'm just taking a, the, the, the passenger seat right now and watching this all play out and <laughs> waiting for open AI to like come out with something that is completely going to disrupt everything these people are doing. And it's just going to be like light years ahead. And I'm just going to use that API. Yeah. So do you know, like there are how many how many companies were destroyed just because Chat ChatGPT yeah, came? Right. I know yeah. at least ten companies in YC right were actually building something similar, and they kind of pivoted after ChatGPT. Right. I think that is <laughs> um, what is going to happen. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a it's a scary space to be building stuff on top of of GPT. It's a, it's exciting for the short term until you like uh, keep tabs on on what's coming out after. We've already seen that with like some of the bigger AI um, copy generator tools like Jasper, who just did layoffs. Um, you know, like everyone's talking about ChatGPT right now, and and like their their number of active users probably dropped dramatically with how many people just like moved over from Jasper to just doing stuff in in ChatGPT, right? Like without that that UI, but Anyways, Arun, this has been super fun. I feel like we could uh, keep jamming on this. Uh, I'm super excited to keep tabs on on Castled and uh, definitely going to be a, a fan and, and and supporting you guys on on the sidelines and excited to see what what you build and and if you end up uh, going the consolidation route and and adding more uh, CDP type features in there. But I'll hit you up with one last question, Arun. You're your co-founder. CEO, you're a cricket fan. You're also an avid movie buff. You're a girl dad. Uh, you have a lot going on. Clearly, uh, one question we ask all of our guests on the show is, "How do you remain happy and successful in your career? How do you find balance between all the things you're working on while staying happy?" Yeah, I think that's just one lesson that we learned, like pretty soon in the journey, is that ninety uh, percent of the ninety eight percent of the things that you're going to do are going to go wrong, right? And then you're going to see like you're a lot of no's, right? And uh, I remember like, you know, we had like few customers, I think maybe a year before, right? Even before YC were like completely lined up and they did not convert and we just completely went to depression and everything. <laughs> and then, then you realize that, you know, that is not how it is. Right? Because your first time founders, we did not understand. Now for us, it does not really matter, right? We just try to convert the customers and if it does not go, we just kind of go to the next customer. I think it's it's a maturity which kind of gradually evolved, uh, which has probably kind of resulted in this. And other than that, obviously, it is very stressful, very hectic, right? So we try to kind of work out, like, you know, I just play with my daughter. It's a very small daughter, right? I play with my friends. I spend time with my friends, right? So so that's how I'm able to kind of manage this, right? I understand that um, this is my super important part of my career, right? Super important part of my life, but I have to kind of separate it out. Otherwise, I'll not be able to kind of be productive in my this thing, right? So, so that is how I can try to kind of manage it, right? If that makes sense. Love it. Yeah, yeah. It makes total sense. Totally relate with that. Uh, I got a tiny daughter uh, at home myself and uh, definitely try to find a, as much time as possible for uh, for for playing games with her. And uh, yeah, it's pretty wild to see how how fast they grow up. Uh, Arun, anything else you, you want to plug for for the audience? I feel like you you've got an interesting potential ICP of, of, of MarTech folks that that are listening right now that are maybe on the B2C side that are thinking like, hey, I'm, I'm not getting money out of all of my users in my database right now, but I'm paying for them. Maybe I should uh, check out Castle. Uh, anything you want to plug? Yeah, I mean, I don't really want to kind of directly pitch into them, right? I just want to kind of tell everybody that be slightly more open to kind of what is happening around you, right? So not everything is scary. Right, it is possible that like a, a tech like I mean, I understand that there's a lot of you know, like misconceptions about warehouse native tech about you know this cannot do that, this cannot do that. Right, I kind of try to clear a lot of those things. Right, so I just want to say that I would not have been like you know quit my you know high paying job and just doing this if I did not think this was feasible enough. Right, so just slightly be more open and then see you know what this can bring. Right, but other than that, yeah, that's what I want to say. I'll love it. Arun, thank you so much for your time today. This was a fascinating chat. Appreciate it.